Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency for the New Spectator USA website. I'm joined today by Daniel McCarthy, who is the editor of Modern Age and a regular contributor to Spectator USA. And we're going to be talking about Trump's emergency declaration of a wall and whether it can be stopped or is going to be stopped. Dan, we have a piece on the website today about Mitch McConnell has said that he, the Senate will pass a resolution to disprove Donald Trump's declaration of an emergency on the border. This is being hyped up as quite a significant bit of news. How significant do you think it is? Well, your word is exactly right. It's being hyped up. So Beltway commentators like these kinds of splits between a party and its president, and they attribute great significance to them. But I don't know that the American people really followed the arcana of uh, Senate votes and you know veto overrides and so forth as closely as the pundits do. So it seems to me that there's going to be much less of a public reaction to this than there will be in terms of a media reaction. Now, that said, the media you know, are going to try so hard to trump this up into something that's a big embarrassment for the president that inevitably he'll get asked questions about it and it'll be you know, a little bit of a ruckus. But I really don't think in the end it matters very much, especially since Trump is just going to override the veto and that'll be the end of it. Yes. Nonetheless, it is interesting that, you know, Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate majority leader, is is at odds with Trump on this, as as he is on things like uh, withdrawal from Syria. And it's even more interesting, perhaps, to note that Rand Paul has joined the 47 Senate Democrats. McConnell is actually sort of caught between a rock and a hard place here. So McConnell's going to vote for the president. He's going to, you know, uh, vote against nullifying this emergency declaration. But what he's doing is he's acknowledging that even though he himself is supporting the president's position on this, there are enough Republican defections, four defections so far, that the attempt at nullifying the emergency declaration is going to pass. So really what McConnell's doing is acknowledging reality. Now, there are some people who think that McConnell could be fighting harder for the president, that he could be you know, sort of putting more pressure on Rand Paul and Tom Tillis, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, who are the four Republicans who are at present set to defect. Uh, But it seems to me that actually there's very little leverage McConnell commands over those four. And probably there are going to be a few other defections as well. So McConnell, I'm not really surprised by. I mean, he's trying to be both loyal to the president while also being just honest about what's going to happen here. And and take us through the the sort of complexity of it in terms of how this actually gets done. I mean, the Senate will, the Senate therefore will sort of, if this resolution is passed to disapprove it, it just goes to Trump's desk and he overrides it anyway, doesn't he? And says it's That's an right. emergency. Yeah. So Donald Trump, it, well, there's some interesting background to the legislation that enables the president to declare these emergencies. The legislation originally was written in such a way that Congress would have the opportunity to nullify the emergency declarations with, with a simple majority vote. This then went actually to the U.S. courts, and the courts said, that doesn't work. You can't create this new kind of legislative mechanism. If you want to sort of call back these emergency powers you're granting the president, you have to do it through the regular process, which allows, basically it requires legislation, and the president can always veto legislation. What that means, of course, is that the president can veto the nullification, and then it would take a two-thirds vote of both houses of Congress in order to override that presidential veto. So what's going to happen here is that if the Senate does indeed vote to nullify the president's emergency declaration, the president will then veto that nullification, and then it will go back to the House, 
where it looks as if the House of Representatives, even, even that won't have a two-thirds majority to override the veto. And that would be the end of it at that point. I don't know that the Senate would take it up again, but if it came to the Senate a second time, it certainly would fail to override the veto. So really, you know, there's not that much humiliation involved here for the president. There's, you know, sort of one vote in the Senate, which is going to be a little bit embarrassing because the Republicans do control the Senate. But again, I mean, when you're dealing with people like Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who are quite liberal, or when you're dealing with Rand Paul, who is, of course, libertarian and independent, you kind of expect to lose a bit of party discipline. And, and it, I, what it really boils down to is, you know, how quickly will the walls start being built if Trump can declare his emergency measures? Because there's other ways in which it could be clogged up. I mean, it could be clogged up on the funding side. There's sort of technicalities of the funding, as far as I understand, and also through the courts and through yes, the various I, state courts. I expect there will be various kinds of legal challenges, both to the way he want, Trump wants to use uh, military funds, the way that land on the border might be appropriated in order to build the wall. I think there will be a whole series of legal challenges which will slow down the process considerably. Now, Trump can actually access about $4 billion worth of funding, even without the emergency declaration. That money comes from funds assigned for anti-drug efforts and a number of other things. So he's, he's able to get started, even if you know, the question of the emergency declaration funding, which would be money they would be taking from uh, sort of funds designated for the military, even if that gets clogged up for a while. But again, there's there are legal challenges that can be mounted on all these fronts. So I do expect it will take a long time to be sorted out. I've often wondered that with Trump and the border question in that he, he often stresses the importance of keeping drugs out of America. And that's a kind of clearly something that is popular with with the public, particularly with sort of drug and crime as they are at the moment. But I mean, I've often wondered why he hasn't just always sold it as simply a war on drugs rather than a you know question of who they're letting into the country. That's right. I think it's simply because immigration is you know a, a theme that Trump has been emphasizing for the past three years, and it's now something he's very comfortable with rhetorically. And yes. you know, war on drug rhetoric is a slightly different matter. And I don't know that he's kind of thought it through or taken a uh, sharp enough position on that to be able to make it a consistent argument. You know, Trump, in some respects, seems to be for de-escalating at least elements of the war on drugs, perhaps with regard to marijuana, for example. So yeah. um, I think, you know, he's more comfortable with thinking of it in terms of immigration and in terms of the sort of crime problem in general on the border, as opposed to a, a drug war issue in particular. Well, I mean, how do you as a, I know you're not a, a libertarian in the in the Rand Paul sense, I don't think, but how do you react to what presumably is Rand Paul's objection to the president taking emergency powers, which is it, you know, even if it's been done before, it still sets dangerous precedent for future presidents to come. And, and you know, I mean, the emergency declaration is a dangerous breach of executive power, is it not? Well, the idea of setting a bad precedent is unfortunately completely irrelevant and moot at this point, because once the president has made the attempt, even if he gets sort of slightly rebuked by the Senate, fact that there's not enough votes to override a veto means that the precedent is going to stand one way or the other. So it's really kind of a futile stand in that regard. And as a tactical vote, it, it doesn't make sense. I think, however, Rand Paul would say that basically the original legislation that creates these emergency powers is something that goes beyond what the Constitution would really approve of. And mm -hmm. that's a problem in general. So on that ground, he's also going to vote against it. And I think that's the stronger argument. You know, the question of what kind of emergency powers the president should have is something I think Congress should have been taking more seriously all along. And, you know, there have been all sorts of states of emergency declared on pretty flimsy grounds over the decades. And so it seems to me there's not really that much that's being added to the precedent 
uh, by what Trump's going to do here. And certainly the next Democrat that comes along will indeed try to you know, do new things. But, you know, Barack Obama did that anyway, using executive orders really tried to get around the fact that he was dealing with a Republican Congress that opposed his agenda. This is, I think, is the new normal, or good or ill, for the American Republic, that we're going to continue to have presidents and Congress not working together, but instead uh, each one trying to go around the other. Yes, I mean, it seems inevitable now. If you look at, you know, people talk a lot about the tribalization or the, you know, the polarization of the two parties. It seems there would be total gridlock on almost everything or every key issue. And so it seems that if you want to pass any laws, it has to be done through emergency measures, really. Yeah, it's basically that Congress has fundamentally failed in its responsibilities. All the blame here belongs to Congress, because Congress, instead of wanting to take responsibility for itself, for trade policy, for example, or for, you know, in this case, immigration policy, Congress almost always prefers to pass the buck, give a blank check to the president, and then expect that the president is going to do the things that Congress wants him to do, and it's going to then take the political blame for it, right? Uh, But instead, with Donald Trump, because Donald Trump is very unlike every other president we've had for the last 30 years, Trump is actually doing things that Congress does not like. So you've seen this with trade as well, where the president has lots of trade powers, which the Congress, which the Constitution actually gives to Congress. But Congress has passed them on to the president because Congress didn't want to have, you know, manufacturing interests and other interests getting involved in congressional primaries and whatnot and putting pressure on Congress. So Congress said, you know what? We can escape this pressure if we make it just make all these things presidential powers and let the president take the blame. Well, now Donald Trump is doing things that Congress doesn't like. And suddenly, you know, Congress has to live with the consequences of its own cowardice. And actually, that's perhaps why Congress is even less popular in America than Donald Trump, isn't it? That's right. And I think that's something that, you know, pundits should keep in mind here. If you have a fight between sort of a majority in Congress, you know, Democratic majority in the U.S. House of Representatives, and a majority of Democrats plus a few defecting Republicans in the Senate, the idea that this represents a uh, a popular rebuke to the president is not really accurate, because in fact, the the American people tend to side with the president over Congress in a lot of these kinds of disputes. And in general, Congress has much lower approval ratings than the president himself does. The president at least has the support of almost all Republican voters. So he gets, you know, right now his approval rating seems to be up into the the 40% range, somewhat higher than that. Whereas the Congress, you know, even most Republicans don't like Republicans in Congress. <laughs> so yeah. Congress's approval ratings sometimes drop into the single digits. So I think this is a fight that Donald Trump can win in the, the court of public opinion, as well as in, you know, in terms of actually getting his emergency powers. And, and it's actually another way in which Obama and Trump are kind of mirrors of each other. And that, I mean, Obama was quite successful, like I get the impression, at conveying himself as this guy who's trying to do good for the country. And yet he's always being held back by these nasty Republicans in Congress. Trump will be able to do the same, won't he? To a large degree, I think so. The the main difference is that Barack Obama had the media on his side. And so, you know, every day Americans were seeing from, you know, CNN and from the newspapers and other major media outlets, this narrative in which Barack Obama was the victim of a, you know, sort of horribly obstructionist Republican Congress that just wanted to see Obama fail. Whereas now, even though you actually do have in some ways a similar kind of situation, you're not getting that narrative. Instead, the, the major media outlets are saying that Donald Trump is this monster who wants to you know, seize arbitrary, dictatorial, unconstitutional power, and that these brave people in Congress, including a few brave Republicans, uh, are standing up against him. So that difference in media reporting is going to make a difference to some degree in terms of how the American public responds. But I think it's very interesting to look at how Republican grassroots voters are responding to this, because I'm seeing on Facebook 
not just a lot of ordinary Republicans, but even some libertarian leading grassroots Republicans basically saying that Rand Paul has sort of sort of euthanized his own prospects of becoming president in the future and has really damaged himself politically by going against the president here. Now, I, I think Rand Paul can actually recover from this. I think people you know, might be willing to give him a certain amount of leeway simply because they know that he has very strong principles about what, what's constitutional and what's not, especially with regards to these emergency powers. But uh, the first impression is certainly that he's taking more damage from this than the president is. That's interesting. And it's also particularly interesting because we know that Rand Paul talks to the president quite a lot. And I wonder whether perhaps there's a sort of agreement between them on, on certain things like this. Well, there's agreement on certain things, although not particularly this question, I think. So I think the president has learned that Rand Paul is independent, but is an independent sort of senator who can be an ally on many issues. So uh, I think Donald Trump is not going to be totally surprised by what Rand Paul is doing here. The bigger problem is that there are a number of other Republicans who haven't yet decided how they're going to vote on this issue. And the larger the number of Republicans who vote against the president, the more embarrassing it is for him. So if it simply comes down to kind of 51-49 vote in which, you know, only four Republicans defect and that causes the president to have to veto this nullification, that's not a big embarrassment. On the other hand, if you have, you know, a half dozen more Republicans join in, then it starts to become, you know, looking looks more like a party revolt at that point. And you talked earlier about sort of flimsy reasons for emergency declarations in the past. They've usually been to do with, as far as I can see, to do with foreign policy. I mean, have there been have there been a, a flimsy domestic one that, that you would say is obviously a flimsier reason to declare an emergency declaration than the crisis at the border? Well, you can declare, you know, emergencies over almost anything domestically. I actually don't know that there are that many. I mean, there are other kinds of abuses that are done with foreign policy, but I don't know that it's the emergency powers that are usually what's invoked there. But yeah, I think right now there are something like 30, you know, sort of emergency invocations of powers that are still in action. I mean, you're right, actually, there are obviously sort of things related to the war on terror and others as well. So, I mean, what Donald Trump's doing here is perhaps most significant just because, you know, this is an issue that has gone to Congress outside of the emergency powers, right? I mean, this is something where he asked Congress to give him funding for the wall. Congress wouldn't do it. And so... That is setting up a, a controversy here that you don't often see. Presidents don't usually go to Congress for permission, get denied permission, and then go do it anyway. Although Obama had threatened to do that on a, in a few fronts. And again, it seems to me that it's not so much that Trump is setting a precedent here, as that this is the direction things have been moving in for some time. And Donald Trump is now, you know, sort of the latest uh, wave in what's already been a considerable tide towards, you know, expansion of executive authority and, you know, sort of more broad uses of emergency powers. And I think one way or another, you're going to see more of that under the next president, whenever that president gets into office, whether that's next, you know, in a year and a half from now, or whether it's in five years from now. And executive orders versus emergency powers. I mean, an executive order, is it a question of that level of funding? Is it a question of what an executive order can be used for? Why did Trump have to use emergency powers? Well, he could have done, uh, as I say, about $4 billion worth of wall construction without invoking the emergency powers. What the emergency powers allow him to do is to move around some military funds, which otherwise he wouldn't be able to access. So executive orders basically mean Congress has appropriated money to an executive agency and that the president can order that agency to behave in one way versus another way. And there are certain constraints on him depending on how Congress has appropriated that funding. 
The emergency powers mean that funds which have not really been appropriated by Congress, but that are, you know, sort of set aside or accessible in the, in certain limited circumstances, emergency circumstances, then become available. So it's it's really a matter of how much leeway you have with congressional appropriations. And again, that is that's what Rand Paul is citing here as being his main objection, is that Congress has not only not appropriated funds for a building a wall here, but it's explicitly been asked to vote on that and voted against appropriating the funds. So that, um, to Rand Paul, is a sign that it really is a run around the Constitution to go ahead and access these funds anyway. And, and lastly, do you think by the time we reach 2020, the, the year of the next presidential election, the wall will be being built by then? Construction will have actually started. Or do you think it will be kind of locked up in legalese? I think it'll be both. So really, you'll have some kind of wall construction, but it may be quite limited indeed, and it may be you know, defined in such a way as to make it not the wall that Donald Trump wants to build. So that may be the way they get around some of the legal confrontations is simply by saying, well, you know, this barrier is something that we've already had. And there already are segments of barriers and walls on the border. So there, mm-hmm. you know, I think you'll see more of that. But obviously, the, the sort of main event, the, the large scale construction is going to be tied up in many kinds of legal fights, most likely. Dan, thank you very much, as always. Thanks, Freddie. Thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to the magazine through our special podcast offer, which is on www.spectators.co.uk forward slash pod offer. And we'll even throw in a Spectator Moleskin notebook for people who take up that offer. <laughs>